from the KUAM Podcast Network, this is Arlene Live with conversation on island issues facing Guam and the Northern Mariana Islands. Now, here's Arlene. Today is the 3rd of November 2019 on Guam and it is November 2nd in North Carolina for Doug Pratt and Doug Pratt is my guest today for the podcast. I was introduced to Doug Pratt through Division of Agriculture and Wildlife Resources. I've been interested in birds since I was a little kid and I asked Tino Uggen, how can I get a hold of this artist? I really would like to speak with him about the birds more than just appreciating the artwork and the names of the birds. At the time, I didn't even know they had Chamorro names for them. But that is how I got in contact with you, and you have been just a wonderful lifeline for me since then. So I want to thank you first and foremost before we continue this interview. No, you're quite welcome. Okay, so tell us a little bit about H. Douglas Pratt, and what does the H, first of all, stand for? Well, the, the H stands for Harold. I'm a junior, and my father was Harold, and so I was Doug. That was just the way we worked it out. I had a cousin whose uh, father was Ben, and he was Ben Jr., and so uh, we always called him Big Ben and Little Ben, and my mother was not going to have any of that. Little Ben turned out to be a lot bigger than Big Ben in the long run, so yeah. she was wise to do that. So I just got used to the name Doug, and Douglas, so I go by a middle name. That's, that's the reason for the first initial. Trouble is, the computers can't seem to figure out how to give you a first initial and a middle name. So that's true. I'm having to go by uh, Harold D. a lot of times. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how it was that you were interested in birds. Oh, boy, you're asking for a long story there. Yes, I am. Uh, well, I, I got interested in birds as a little kid, and I'm not really sure why. I think I, it's just one of those things, you know, kids get interested in things, and you never know exactly what the influence was. You know, nobody, you know, taught me to be interested in birds. I just somehow took an interest in it. And uh, I had an aunt who encouraged me in it, but uh, she was a birder of sorts, but she was not... You know, I didn't really even know that she knew anything about birds when I first got interested. So, you know, that, it wasn't that kind of an influence. So anyway, uh, like uh, so many of the hobbies that I have had in my life, this one got out of hand <laughs> and turned into a profession eventually. Graduated from college with a degree in biology and then went on to uh, graduate school at Louisiana State University to study ornithology under uh, George Lowry, who was a fairly well-known professor there, and who also had several students who were bird artists. So this was a, a double whammy for me. I figured, okay, I could learn a little bit about both things uh, at LSU. And it, it turned out to be uh, a good choice and a, a good place for me. I went there thinking that I would end up in some of their projects uh, in uh, South America. But another student came the year after I did, who was from Hawaii, yeah. and uh, he and I got to talking about uh, uh, Hawaii, and the, his, uh, he had wanted to do a book on Hawaiian birds, a field guide sort of thing, uh, for a number of years, but he was had, didn't have an artist uh, mm -hmm. to work with him. 
And so there I was, an artist looking for a, a book to illustrate, and he was looking for an artist. So anyway, we sort of got together. And one thing led to another, and I ended up doing my uh, uh, doctoral research on Hawaiian birds. And so that got me into the Pacific. But the book we were talking about, we decided should expand and cover the whole tropical Pacific area, including Micronesia and Polynesia. So we started making trips to those parts of the Pacific, and uh, it turned out we were real pioneers in a lot of respects. We were the first people to record the bird sounds uh, that we found uh, on from the birds on these islands and uh, uh, just, you know, learned a lot about them and put that into our 1987 book, which is a field guide to the birds of Hawaii and the tropical Pacific. And... Uh, but that, that covered uh, quite a few years, and that, that's sort of the link that got me into the Pacific. Now, the truth is I had always had a little bit of an interest in the Pacific area. Uh, when I was a little boy, uh, I sang in the Charlotte Boys Choir. I, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, one, they did a, a show sort of thing. It wasn't your typical boys' choir. They, they had a show with you know, acts up front, and they did a, a song about Hawaii. I think it was, I, I want to go back to my little grass shack, <laughs> some commercial Hollywood thing. And they had one of the boys dressed up as a hula dancer. And then the two of us standing over to the side, plunking on our ukuleles were me and another kid. So I don't know, I sort of got interested in Hawaiian things. And uh, later on came to realize that Hawaii had uh, birds that were unique to it. Mm -hmm. found nowhere else in the world, and that was a fascinating idea, and I just uh, figured one day I'd get out there, and eventually I did uh, with my uh, my friend Phil, I should mention Phil Bruner, who was the other graduate student who was from Hawaii, and he's uh, one of the co-authors on the, the 1987 book. When you made these uh, moves, these these trips, did you fund these yourself? Uh, no, uh, we didn't have to do it exactly out of pocket, although in a way you could say that they were self-funded up to a point, at least yeah. part of it. But we got some grants to help with our travel expenses uh, from LSU and uh, from uh, the American Museum of uh, Nat uh, Natural History, which has a program called the Chapman Grants, and we got one of those. And um, uh, otherwise, I'm just uh, financed uh, out of pocket in my case. Uh, I was a, a bird illustrator, and I had sold a, a series of paintings or was commissioned to do a series of paintings for the state of Hawaii that brought in what seemed like a lot of money at the time. Now, looking back on it, it doesn't seem like the much, but <laughs> it was enough to, you know, fill fill the gap between what, what we had from grants and, and otherwise. So uh, that's how we did it. I should mention that Phil, uh, Phil Bruner, my partner in those trips, had uh, relatives and friends scattered all over the Pacific. So in many places that we went, we didn't have the cost of hotels and things mm. like that to deal with because we could stay with, with friends. Well, that, that always helps out. So even though your interest in birds existed as a child, when did you become an artist? How did that occur? Well, kind of simultaneously with it. Uh, I, I never set out to to be an artist, and in fact, I rarely call myself an artist. I call myself an illustrator. Okay. Uh, and uh, I, I have a quotation that I use as the tag on my emails. And it's from Norman Rockwell, and he says, roughly, some people have been kind enough to call me an artist. I've always called myself an illustrator. I'm not sure what the difference is. 
I was going to say, what is the difference? My definition, the way I would say it, is that uh, an illustrator uh, does pictures of things. In other words, if you're trying to describe something, it's easier to have a picture of it sometimes than to describe it. So, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an illustrator is like a nonfiction author, whereas an artist is creating something, hopefully something nobody else has done before, so mm. it's completely original, and I would compare that to somebody writing fiction. Uh, so I, I'm, and I, I'm terrible at, at fiction writing, and I, I have no aspiration to do that. And uh, likewise with uh, uh, doing creative art, I just, I just don't have any interest in that. So I, I do pictures of birds, and I, I have done other, other natural history subjects. I've done uh, mammals and reptiles and plants of various kinds, flowers, things like that. Uh, you know, birds in their environment. So um, that's what interests me, and uh, so that's what I do. There are pictures of things, uh, so I, I illustrate. And I quite literally have illustrated quite a few books, so I'm listed as the illustrator of the book. That's a very important distinction because, similarly, I share that same definition that an artist is an original idea. It's something that is conceived in the mind of the artist and then transferred into communicating, mm -hmm. you know, some kind of feeling or idea in, in the art that is drawn. What if you're using something that already exists and then you, you transfer that to a different medium, I, I agree that that's really more illustrating. But even still, you're considered an artist. So well, in, in the general public, uh, people call anybody who, who does pictures or images of any kind, uh, that's called doing art. So, right. Well, I always say, uh, I try to make the distinction uh, that, you know, we have the phrase arts and crafts. Well, illustrating is a craft. It's not necessarily an art, mm -hmm. but it's equally valid, and it's not anything to be embarrassed or ashamed about. I'm proud to be an illustrator. Uh, I don't want to be an artist. Right. <laughs> So when people say, oh, well, you're not really an artist, I say, well, yeah, that's right. Well, I don't think they need to go out of their way to say that. You know that. but Well, that has happened a few times. I'm sure. I know. You know, that's the thing about people. They just can't just celebrate the work that, I mean, the joy that they get from your work. For example, I have become more involved in birding because of your influence. I'm taking pictures of the birds. I share them freely mm -hmm. on WhatsApp and email and whomever wants to learn about it. And there's a lot that I've learned that I share with them as well. And they're just mm -hmm. surprised that the birds are here and that they're, they really do draw a lot of comfort and, and joy from looking at the beautiful um, artwork that you know God's created with these birds. In a very short time, you've become a very, very good uh, bird photographer. And I, I'm tickled every time I see an, an email from you in my email. So I figure, oh, this is going to have some great pictures with it. They're not always great, but uh, usually they are. I must admit that my time and effort invested into this work is the same from beginning to end. But what's different is the equipment. I'm not on your website right now, and I'm looking at your bio, and you're holding an illustration of a bird with a beautiful background of plants, and I'm guessing that these are the plants that this bird is standing on or whatever. I'm not sure why. Let me interrupt you for okay. a second. This is a, a good comparison. Okay. I take pictures, but I don't consider myself a photographer, whereas you are a photographer because you work at the photography. 
the only reason I take pictures is to have reference material ah. to make those background paintings like you're looking at. Uh, so, you know, I'm just taking pictures. I'm not trying to do photography. Sort of like yeah. uh, an artist compared to an illustrator. Right, and with me, I love taking the pictures of the birds, and as a result, I've become a birder by doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and and I've, of course, my interest drags me into, I want to learn more about this bird. Oh, you know, where does it come from? What does it eat? You know, and then the behavior. I am so thrilled at watching them for hours, Doug. I just can't pull myself away from them sometimes. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's a good thing for, for science anyway, because you'll learn something by doing that. You have already. You've discovered some things that were very interesting in behavior of, of the uh, yellow bittern, for example. So uh, you're not wasting your time. No, I, I hope not. And I will take the advice that you've given me to submit that to Cornell. It's just, you know, I... I like you, it's like I'm reserved because it's like, is this really worthy to submit? But it's field work. Explain to the listeners why field work is critical to all aspects of what science does with these animals. Well, you know, you've got to go out and, and look at the subject you're studying, and uh, that's how we learn things. I always tell people uh, when they say, like you did, oh, well, is this worth adding to the collection there? Well, they don't have that many recordings of, of things like that to start with. But even if they had a whole bunch of them, uh, you never have too much information. You often have too little to answer a particular question, but you never have too much. Hmm. And so uh, the more the merrier, and as time goes on, things change. We need to document what, what's happening at a particular time uh, in history because in 100 years, these birds may not be around or things may have changed completely and we want to be able to, to document how it was at right now so that people looking back will have accurate information. Okay, so that, that brings up a few other points, but I'm not going to go there right now. I want to I wanna kind of generally uh, progress to the reason for certain extinctions. This is Arlene Live, and we've got more coming up in just a moment. Buenas tardes, I'm Lacey Martinez Francisco. If you're hungry or have a passion about everything food, then I've got just the show for you, with me. Each week I bring you Foodie Call, a show about all aspects of how we Guamanians enjoy our cuisine, preparing it, consuming it, sharing it, using it as social currency, and talking endlessly about it. We also profile people in our community who are masters of their crafts in working with food. Whether you eat with your eyes or can't wait to fill your stomach, or if you're a perfectionist about the process, you'll enjoy Foodie Call right here on the KWM Podcast Network. So lock in our show by subscribing to our feed on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, or on your favorite podcatcher platform. And get our freshest episodes delivered right to your device when we're done cooking them. We'll see you then, and we'll make you a plate. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Now, let's go back to your interest in the Pacific birds. Where was the first island west of Honolulu that you visited and started studying the birds? And what, did, what does studying the birds mean with Doug Pratt? 
Well, it involves uh, using every piece of equipment you've got. And, of course, back in the days, this was the 1970s, that uh, Phil and I were doing our work. Um, you know, Phil has a small uh, museum at uh, uh, BYU Hawaii, uh, where he's a professor now, and uh, he had, he was collecting specimens of birds to uh, put in that museum, and many of those specimens turned out to be extremely valuable. Uh, we don't do as much uh, collecting of, of bird specimens as we used to, because birds are getting scarcer, and mm-hmm. you have to be careful about things like that. And of course, it's always done under permit and, and all of that. But that was one aspect of it. Uh, I was, of course, taking pictures, uh, things for reference. If I could get pictures of the birds, that was great, but I was taking pictures of the plants and the habitats and other things that you could do. And you remember, this was back in the day of film photography, and uh, film was expensive and processing was expensive, and so you were limited in how much you could take. And, uh, you know, you didn't have the lenses and the cameras that you have now. And uh, it was really hard to get good bird pictures in right. those days. Uh, it, it's a lot easier now. Uh, not, to, not to say that it's easier. Everybody would be doing it and getting great stuff. And, well, to some extent, I suppose they are compared mm-hmm. to what we used to have. But mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway... Uh, that was part of it. And, of course, making notes on the, the behavior of the birds that we're able to observe. And then uh, an important aspect of this for me was recording bird sounds because nobody had ever recorded bird sounds on any of these islands before. Uh, now, the recordings that I made in the 1970s are now accessible online uh, at what's called the Macaulay Library, which is a, a thing at uh, Cornell University or uh, part of Cornell University, I should call it, mm-hmm. <coughs> at what used to be called the Laboratory of Ornithology. I guess it still is. The, the sound and, and photograph collection is the, the Macaulay Library. But uh, you can look for a particular species of bird uh, in Micronesia, and if you pull up the collection that they have, the recordings are listed one by one, and you can go through and listen to them. And if you look at the recordings, you'll find my name on quite a few of the, well, probably many, many of the ones from Micronesia. I have. This I've done that. It had never been been recorded before, so I felt like I was uh, a real pioneer in that field. No, you were. Um, the National Park Service here, they have a little museum down at Retidian, and they have some sounds of those birds. Did you contribute your recordings to them? Yes, I, I did the recordings that they have. Okay. The, uh, well, you wouldn't call it a tape, but it was a CD at the time that I was able to uh, put together. And I, uh, well, this was quite a while back, but I had the opportunity to visit there and, and hear the, the things played in the little museum. And the lady who was behind the desk at the time uh, remarked that, uh, she said every time she hears those bird songs, it makes her cry because hmm. she had grown up on Guam and she was old enough to have remembered hearing the birds before they were all gone. Mm-hmm. And she said it just it's just a, a different place without those background sounds that you probably didn't even notice at the time. But, you know, looking back, she says, oh, it just brings back my childhood. And I, I felt, uh, felt like I, I had done something completely non-scientific, but something that was valuable to, to that woman in particular. 
Well, it did a lot for me as well because uh, my interest in the birds came from sound. We had a bunch of fruit trees in the backyard. My mother was just had this uh, need to plant something that her mother told her to do. She said, you must plant the tree every day. And so my mother interpreted that into planting a fruit tree every day. And mm-hmm. so our backyard was filled with fruit trees and the tuturica, the, the entire flock would cover the abas tree. But when they would ripen, those birds would come and they would just pick. And the noise, the chirping, the calls was so loud, it would wake me up in the morning. I was really tiny. I was propping myself up with pillows to be able to reach the window just to look out at them. And I always got in trouble because I was always late getting ready. But they fascinated me with their, their quick movement and then, you know, that, so it was the sound of those birds. And I, too, remember the sound of the birds. Um, I never knew the names of the birds until my association with you. So, yeah, you've affected me in a very big way. Well, I'm pleased that, that that's the case. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure that, that my passing of these photographs and helping other people has also affected them. So the reach continues and hopefully will continue to go. So how far did your illustration of these birds go? And, and how much of those photographs that you're holding in this, on this front page of your website on your bio? Oh, I have no idea how many. If you're talking about how many birds I've painted in my life, I, I couldn't even fathom a guess. I, I wouldn't even give you an order of magnitude. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm sure it's thousands, but I have no no idea wow. about that. And okay, so let's just talk about this one that you're holding. You're wearing a khaki pants in your bio page. And how long does it take you to illustrate that picture that you've got? Well, I have a a, uh, a snarky answer to that question. I get asked that a lot. And uh, I'll give you the, the true answer first, uh, which is <laughs> given a bird that not particularly complicated. In other words, a fairly ordinary-looking, non-complicated bird. Like I'm complicated, I mean something like a peacock right. or, or a wild turkey. Well, that's complicated. You've got a lot of things going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just just an ordinary brown and white bird, you know, a little brown job, whatever you want to, want to call those. Uh, a bird like that takes me about an hour to paint. If I've got the drawing all done on the paper and I just start painting, putting the paint on the paper, it'll take about an hour. Now, the more complicated birds, it depends on how complicated, so it goes on from there. Mm. But you realize what I just said. I've already got the drawing done. Yes. I've got it transferred down to the paper and all of that. So there's that huge amount of uh, the creative process getting, leading up to the point of actually painting, which is about equivalent to... Uh, I'd say three or four times uh, the the amount that you actually paint. Okay. So getting ready to paint is is uh, more than the actual painting, and then the getting ready to paint also involves all the years of research. Right. That that you've been doing. So you know, I, I had a friend who gave me this idea or overheard him give me this answer, and I thought, well, that's perfect for me. Somebody asked, well, how long does it take you to paint a bird? And I said, it it takes an hour and twenty years. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and and I was going to say from start to finish, so that includes the sketching, but I didn't think about the research. And that's a very good point because none of this is possible without the research, which goes back to the field work. Mm-hmm. And so 
from the moment you start considering it, and that's not even including, that's just the bird, but the environment that it's in, right, and the behavior of that oh, bird. Exact, exactly. Yeah. You've got all of those things. I mean, I'll go to my collection of photographs uh, to look at when I'm making the sketch of the bird, and then I have to figure out, all right, what does, where does this bird live? What kind of a plant uh, should I use uh, as the, the perch for it? Right. So then I have to go dig through my reference photographs of plants from the same area and try to find something that's suitable and, uh, you know, work up a composite from several uh, several different slides. Or it, was, it was slides originally. It wouldn't be slides. Now, images, we'll say. Mm -hmm. um, I'm giving away my age. And with something like that. <laughs> I keep talking about recording as being taped. You are dating yourself. You were born. Let's and so let let's go there. Let's go there for a minute. You were born in 1944. Right. Right. Okay. So I'm 75. This this is my diamond jubilee this year. Wonderful. And we're fortunate to have you. You had a real scare there for a while. You got me very concerned. I'm very grateful well, that you've I, come over. I, well, thank you. And I I I. Uh, it was a scare for me too, no question about it. Yeah, but you uh, well, you handled that you handled that illness so well, Doug. You were such a champion. You had a very positive mindset throughout those years, and they were very dark years for me. I, you know, I mean, I never knew if I was going to hear back, or I didn't know what to ask. I didn't. I had to literally. That was very ginger for me. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, I, I only got to know you then, and then, boom, you had this illness that was, could rob you yeah. of your life. Well, I, I, don't, uh, I don't mind sharing uh, that, uh, that I had stage 4 cancer, and uh, it, was, it was looking pretty grim there for a while. I mean, it was stage 4 when it was found. Uh, I, I was, at the time, I just said, how can I have been that sick and not known it? And the answer is? The answer is... It's an aggressive and fast-moving type of cancer that can appear in just and in just a matter of a few months, reach stage four. And uh, the only reason I even knew I had that was that uh, one of the tumors that it produced was on my spine and was pinching a nerve that was giving me pain in, in one of my legs. And I went to seek treatment for that, and they eventually found the tumor. And uh, so anyway, it was a, a type of... Uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I won't go into the details. I sure. really cares about that. But the treatment was a very aggressive uh, course of chemotherapy. And I will honestly tell you that was no strolling park. Uh, but like you said, I really did have uh, a positive attitude about it. I have a number of friends who are physicians, and they said, well, you're in the best part of the country. You know, we're right here at Duke and UNC, and they have wonderful medical facilities and all of that. That's if you're in a great place for treatment, and, you know, if you're in good health otherwise, uh, you have as good a chance as any uh, to, to get through this. And my oncologist told me that the cure rate for this uh, chemotherapy was uh, 60%. Wow. And I thought, hey, that's 10% better than 50%. That's right. So it's on the positive side of the scale, and I should be in that 60% and not in the 40% who, who don't make it. And as it turned out, uh, at the end of the course, uh, I was in total remission, and I have been ever since. I've, it's been four years now. So four years. Well, uh, you know, what was the what was the hardest part of the treatment, if you don't mind? And and I don't understand how you could be in stage four and not know. How long after you noticed the pain did you react to see a physician? 
Uh, not very long. Okay. I mean, it was a matter of weeks. I, I mean, I, I went in for the treatment on the nerve uh, in January, I believe, of 2015. I'm remembering this right. And they had me diagnosed by February, and I started the chemo in March. Well, so good for you. It was it was it was a it was a quick trudge. It was just a total change of life, uh, practically overnight. Yeah. And uh, you know the one of those things about chemo, and and I have I don't want to say anything bad about it because it saved my life. I'm a great believer in science, mm-hmm. as you know. And I said, you know, probably 20 years ago, I wouldn't have gotten over this. But they've improved things, and uh, chemo is is uh, unpleasant at the time. But uh, if it if it cures you, then it's a good thing. So I I don't want to belittle it or or say anything bad about it. But I will I always use the old cliche: uh, chemotherapy is the gift that keeps on giving. Hmm. Because once you're over it, and like I was in remission, well, yes, but I had lingering effects uh, from that for. It, certainly two more years. What lingering well, effects? Uh, the only thing that still bothers me a lot is uh, I have some uh, new, what they call neuropathy in my feet so that uh, when I walk on a, on a hard floor, it's like I'm walking on rocks. I see. So, so it kind of damages your nerves? It does. Oh, okay. uh, I, I have lost some of my sense of balance uh, because it damages those little... Uh, cells in your uh, inner ear that uh, that determine your balance. I balance by sight now. If you turn out the lights, I, ne- I nearly fall over. So oh, wow. Grab something. So there's pros and cons to every treatment, and the pro is Absolutely. that you're alive, and the con is that you've lost some feeling and and uh, have a little balance. But those are things you can live with, right? Absolutely. Oh, I would, I would, I would take that deal any day. No yeah. problem at all. And... Uh, so well, you have to, the way chemotherapy works, I can do this just in a, in a hurry here. Sure. Uh, they give you a course that involves four poisons, and they don't even sugarcoat that. They call them poisons. We're giving you four poisons. Right. And uh, the, uh, the theory is that the cancer cells are reproducing very rapidly uh, in your body, more uh, faster than your own body cells. Well, the poisons go after the most rapidly dividing cells in your body. So it goes after the cancer cells, and it also goes after things that are dividing quickly, like your hair cells, the hair follicles, uh, you know, your hair growth, your fingernail growth. That's why your hair falls out. Mm. It comes back, unfortunately. Does it come back it, thicker uh, than it did before? No. Uh, well, in my case, it's thinner. I mean, okay. the hair itself is just not as thick as it used to be. Okay. Uh, but it, but at least I have some. Yep. <laughs> I, I would I would have swapped the bald head for getting over that, too. Well, it's uh, true. I didn't have to do that permanently. You look like the Telly Savalas of birds. Yeah. Well, I could, I suppose. <laughs> and that would be fine. I, yep. I would have no, no objection. Right. That. So I, I guess I'm trying to say this to encourage anybody absolutely with with a situation like this it's not hopeless and uh the doctors can do marvelous things uh, these days and you just uh, i think the positive attitude actually has an effect i i'm, I'm convinced of that yeah. and i'm not sure why i was so positive about it but uh, but i was I, I just never i don't know i just went on with my life as best i could just thinking well you know this is just one more thing i have deal with and uh, I didn't didn't get that 
gloomy feeling of, well, you know, this is, this is the end, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I yeah. did go through all the. I mean, I heard that cliche phrase, well, Mr. Pratt, you better get your affairs in order. And Don't go away. There's more coming up with Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, and what is going on? Jason Salas here with KUM Digital, and I'm going to get you right back to your show in just a moment, but I am popping in to let you know about the amazing opportunities you have to sell your brand, get customers for your service, or promote your event on all our library of podcasts on the KUM Podcast Network. Our shows have global distribution and are sent to all the major podcast directories and devices, from mobile phones and tablets to laptops and smart speakers to integrated TVs and all on demand. By running an audio ad on the KUM Podcast Network, you'll guarantee timely exposure and market penetration for your stuff and see immediate results no matter what your end game or actionable items are. You want to drive downloads for a cool new app that you've built? Done. Want to see your restaurant gain an instant surge in foot traffic? Easy peasy, man. Does your business need some sort of boost? All you got to do is plug a promo code that ties into an incentive and see measurable, tangible results that very same day. Podcasting is the internet's fastest growing ad platform, and you can reach customers and partners now. To find out more about our ad opportunities and how podcast plugs can work for you, get in touch with us at podcast at KUAM.com. Just think about it. Your ad could be running right here instead of my shrill voice, and your business would have a big leg up on the competition. So don't let this opportunity to connect with customers, extend your reach, and increase your effective exposure pass you by. Get in touch with the KUAM digital marketing experts by emailing podcasts at KUAM.com. That's podcasts, plural, at KUAM.com. And let us put together an effective marketing plan for your stuff, just like this ad has been. See what I did there? All right, everybody. We're going to talk to you soon. But for now, let's get you back to this podcast. Now, back to the conversation with Arlene Live. And I did. I did all those things, uh-huh. and that didn't depress me. It's just, you know, okay, this is something I have to do, and now that it's done, it's done. So, you know, for the future, that's, that's a good thing. Right. You wrote to your friends, and you included me in it, and that moved me so much because I had just started to learn about you and know you, and yet the discovery of the disease, the prognosis, the treatment, and then you continued throughout um, with updates and and, you know, you, you didn't sugarcoat, like you said, but I was very moved by that. It's like, wow, what a positive mindset. And I'm sure it contributed to your well-being. Well, I, I guess it does. And uh, yeah, and you were included. I, I mean, it, it, don't flatter yourself too much. It was, <laughs> I said that to just about everybody I know. So. Well, uh, I'm glad you, you know, did. Corresponding, I would, wouldn't want to just sort of drop off face the earth and, and you not even know what, what had happened. So, uh, And I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. And like I said, you know, you, you pulled me into your world in, in more ways than one. And I, I've 
always wondered about chemo because there are some people who just won't take any of it. And I know now a friend of ours whose grandson is suffering from it, and, and he's a champion, similarly mm -hmm. to you, just a champion in, in, you know, the fight for life is worth it, is, where, I guess, where I'm going. Yeah. Well, uh, and there are other things. You shouldn't feel guilty if you, if you don't do as well as I did because it depends a lot on the type of cancer that you have. Right. I say mine was, was an aggressive and fast-moving cancer, and that's the key word right there, aggressive and fast-moving. That meant it was just setting itself up for chemotherapy. It was just what chemotherapy was right for, to yeah. go after those fast-dividing cells. So and I guess it really does make a difference when you listen to your doctor's advice, right? I would say uh, don't argue. Yeah. Okay. That's just assume you trust them to start with. And I, I had a had a really good uh, team uh, working with me. I, I was at uh, University of North Carolina uh, UNC Hospital here. Yeah. You said Duke. Is that a, a medical hospital? Well, uh, Duke has a medical hospital as well, and and they're they're also an option here. I just happened to end up at uh, UNC, but Duke has a wonderful facility here. Uh, that's why my friend said I was in such a good spot of the country because we had several I see. Uh, hospitals uh, that, that do this sort of thing. Okay. I, I, didn't even have to, I didn't have to leave home and go somewhere else. I mean, it was a 15-minute drive to the hospital. So. Wow. You were fortunate. Okay, so, you know, thank you for sharing that. But um, in, that, in those three years, were you able to work, Doug? Yes, I was able to work some, but... Uh, you know, at the time, you reach a point where you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm probably, you know, over this. But you aren't really. There's, a, there's some mental things you have to deal with. I just, I don't know, it took me a long time to, uh, well, to use a street phrase, to get my mojo back. You know, <laughs> I, just, I just wasn't, I just didn't, you know, I felt okay health-wise, but I just was still... Uh, depressed, I think, a little bit. Right, I, right. I wasn't treated for that. But uh, looking back on it, I think I was having some mild depression. And I just, just couldn't get myself moving and, and, and get things done. I, I worked. I, I, you know, I, I did do some work, but mm -hmm. I was just so slow at it. And uh, I still have a little trouble with that. I'm, I'm a lot slower than I used to be. But I, I think it'll all come back. Uh, and, it, and it is coming back uh, very slowly. Well, you know, you know, when you are being poisoned... I think you need to expect that your mojo is going to be affected. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, no question about it. Okay. We're back up with your speed of work. Are you happy with it? Um, with the work itself, yes. This is a nice segue here. The work that really got me back working again was uh, finishing those, uh, that series of paintings of Guam birds that, uh, that you were interested in. Um, that was the first major piece of work that I did after cancer. And uh, I look at it now and I think, well, that's as good as anything I've ever done, maybe better. It's a wonderful so, uh, piece of work. You know, I'm back with that. And, uh, yeah. You're talking about the artwork for Frank? Yes, yes. What did you call it? It was a series of paintings, actually three paintings. They're three paintings, but they, they, they stay together, right? Yes. Okay. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, the, the word is triptych, uh, and that is actually a, a, comes from the Catholic Church. Uh, they have these three-piece altar 
pieces that are called triptychs, and they're usually hinged together. They're like a you know a thing that'll stand alone, but it, it, the the two edges are it's kind of like a, a well. People on Guam wouldn't know what a fireplace grate was or screen was, but it's kind of like that. It has to fold in. And anyway, it's uh, a three piece work of art that's actually a single work of art is a triptych. So you could put, you could separate them, but they really are worthwhile putting together. They're just right. not they're well, just they, not hinged together. Right. Well, the the three of them together tell a story uh, that any one of them by itself does not tell. Right. You should say that. So, okay. Okay. A so it's T R I P like trip, and then the last part is T Y C H. What was the motivation behind that artwork that you were commissioned to do for Frank? Dr. Frank Farrell, uh, he's a physician in San Francisco who grew up on Guam, and uh, he had been here, you know, you know, hearing the birds and knowing the, the birds back before the brown tree snake invaded, and uh, he just wanted to, he wanted to commission me to do all of the birds that had ever been known from Guam uh, in, in a great big, uh, he wanted it originally as one long piece and uh, I told him, well, I couldn't get a piece of paper big enough to do that, and I don't paint on canvas, so right. <laughs> modify the idea. But he had grown up, and he just wanted this as a memorial uh, to Guam's birds as, as they were historically. And uh, he was very, very patient, I have to say, uh, because right after I was beginning work on his project, uh, I was offered a job uh, here in North Carolina. I was living in Louisiana at the time still. And uh, the Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh here offered me a job, and I took it. And, of course, having a, a real job, uh, you know, eight hours a day, uh, you know, what, whatever, uh, however many hours there were, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, mm. uh, anyway, uh, that meant that I didn't have the time to devote to the artwork that I uh, used to do. I had been working as a freelancer, and that had gotten to be pretty uh, pretty hard to maintain. Mm. And uh, so the job, in, in a lot of ways, saved my life in the way that chemo did. But it also meant that uh, Frank's uh, commission got put on the shelf for a while. And then the next time I was really seriously working on it was when I got cancer. <laughs> so he had gone through uh, two setbacks. And it took over 10 years for me to get the, that project done for him. Wow. But to his credit, he stuck it out, and uh, I, I'm glad he did. I mean, he could easily have just said, well, you're just making excuses. You don't really want to do this, blah, blah. You know, I, I, I would have understood. I would have said, fine, you know, that, that's no, no problem. Yeah, I was privileged to some of the discourse um, between the two of you. I'm not sure how I entered that, but I do have to say that, you know, his desire to have the art was just about as compelling as my desire to learn about birds from you. So mm -hmm. I, I, I really felt that, wow, keep pushing, Frank. You know, hang in there, Frank, because I, yeah, felt, yeah. I felt like I had a symbiotic relationship with him in the need for you to get well. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, it does, and I, I didn't know that you had any uh, role in that, but uh, thank you that you did, uh, because I think everything worked out to the best. It helped me to get well, 
and he finally got his paintings, and uh, so it all it all worked out. And it's a beautiful piece of work. I mean, thank you for giving me the privilege to be able to use it in my work as well. And I, I want to one day well, be able. Well, that was I, I should say that was part of uh, Frank's goal too was not just to have those paintings hanging in his house, which he does, right? But uh, to use them for education and other purposes uh, back back home on Guam. For him, so uh, that's that's why he's he's tickled when when we uh, reuse some of the the images from that. Let's talk about the time when the brown tree snake entered into our wildlife. Do you remember when and how that occurred? We we've learned that it kind of you know was a stowaway on a military ship. Is that the only explanation we have of the introduction of the brown tree snakes? Uh, as far as we know, I mean, I know pretty much what you know about okay. it, uh, nothing more, uh, although I can, uh, you know, I was on Guam before the, the birds were all gone, but I, I was one of the first people to uh, sound the alarm uh, when Phil Bruner and I first went to Guam. This would have been 1976. Uh, we noticed something very odd, which is the birds were all in the northern third of the island. Southern two-thirds, there were, were hardly any birds at all. I mean, we drove around the, that southern loop down toward the Magellan Monument and, and all of that area down there. Didn't see but one bird on the whole drive. It was a Micronesian starling that was sitting on a telephone wire at one point. That's the Sali. In northern Guam, you know, the the, uh, the birds were there, mm-hmm. all, all the usual suspects. And uh, so we said, you know, something's going on here because those birds used to be in southern Guam. I thought it was probably some kind of disease affecting the birds and slowly moving up the island. Uh, and when somebody suggested that it was this snake that people had been calling the Philippine rat snake for years and years, well, it's number one, not from the Philippines. Number two, it doesn't eat, well, it does eat rats, but that's not the only thing. It eats birds more than it eats rats. Right. And it's from the Solomon Islands. And any, anyway, so the whole thing was completely mischaracterized. Somebody cool. suggested that it was a, a predator, uh, a snake at that, that was causing the, uh, the whole avifauna to disappear. I said, well, that's just crazy. And uh, so I was kind of the, the bad guy in this for a number of years. I, I just kept saying, this just can't be true. Uh, I wasn't alone in that, but uh, I was I was being hard-headed about it. But uh, they finally... Uh, got the, the data that, that I had to acknowledge, okay, that, that's, that's it. <laughs> well, it I, is the snake. Do you remember, Doug, how the, the information or knowledge about the existence of the snake came to you? I mean, you're saying, uh, that, you're saying that people knew that the brown tree snake was here. Oh, yeah, since World War II. And, uh, uh, so, you know, it, it just had not reached that uh, what we call critical mass. Okay. Uh, you know, when there are enough of them to do damage that was clearly noticeable. Stay where you are. The conversation continues with Arlene Live when we come back. Hey there, podcast subscribers. Wait, hold up. You're not already permanently locked in to receive our feed of awesome on demand digital audio shows from the KUM Podcast Network? Shame on you. <laughs> But it's okay. There's hope for all of us. All you need to do is head over to SoundCloud and hit follow, or if you're on iTunes, tap the subscribe button as hard as you can to directly link up to our studios and get all of our episodes on any digital device 
so that you can enjoy them and join the conversation as soon as we upload them. I'm talking about phones, tablets, Apple TV, whatever. You'll be able to get to us. You can also use your favorite podcast application and search KUM Podcast Network to add us. It's super easy, super fun, super interesting, and most importantly, super free. And for anyone who's already subscribed, thank you so much. You don't need to do any of this. But if you are in iTunes, do what we do on Guam. Help your neighbors out. Break out your digital jumper cables and give us a rating and a review to help our podcast reach as many people as possible. Also, you want to register your email address to receive KUM Digital Digest, our weekly newsletter that goes out every Friday by going to KUM.com and then clicking on the newsletter button at the way tippy top of our homepage. Thanks so much for supporting us. And okay, that's enough gratuitous self-promotion. Let's get back to the show. The conversation continues now on the KUAM Podcast Network with Arlene Live. Uh, the person uh, who actually convinced me that it was the snake and who did the research, did the field work, was a woman named Julie Savage. Uh, and she wrote a major paper on it that I challenged at a meeting of the American Ornithologists Union uh, back in the 1980s. And uh, she ended up win- winning the argument. And, uh, of course, I'm glad she did in the sense that now we at least know what we're fighting. Right. So, and I have not talked to her in decades, but we ended up friends in all of this. Yeah, I know about Julie's work. And you mentioned that the mass was part of that reason. So if they were introduced to Guam right after the war, and it would have taken them up to 1976 to be able to have enough of them to have endangered, actually bring an extinction of the birds in the south. How about the reverse of that, Doug? If we maintain the population of brown tree snakes to the point that existed when they got here, what is the likelihood of reintroducing the birds back into the wild? Uh, I would say things like that don't work very well in reverse. Oh. Uh, I, would, I would think that, in other words, if you're reintroducing birds, you start out with a very few uh, individual birds as your, your first introduction. Well, they're still going to be overwhelmed by the snake. In other words, the proportions are all out of kilter. Right. In other words, you had lots of birds and not as, not so many snakes to start with. And they, the snakes just sort of gradually ate away and ate away and ate away until, until the birds were gone. And then, of course, they moved to some other place and do the same thing as their population expands. There are some mysteries still about uh, the, the brown tree snake. One thing, uh, I've always said, well, all right, so they have, destroyed all birds, so there's nothing left for them to eat, why don't they just uh, all starve to death and die? They're eating other other wildlife. And and they're eating people's uh, barnyard chicks, and, you know, there seems to be enough protein there for them to to get enough to survive and to maintain enormously high 
population numbers. Uh, that's right. another thing. That I, I just don't see how they do that. But, uh, well, that's, for some, that's not my field of study. And right. Somebody else will have to figure that out. We know that the brown tree snake is not the only impact in the devastation of the birds. There are also other behavioral practices that existed. What about typhoons? That frequently comes through here. We know that that destroys some birds. Well, it does. Uh, there are always some birds lost in storms like that. But I always tell people uh, you know, that you know, people want to blame typhoons for, for things like that. And I say, you know, those birds are, are not naive to typhoons. <laughs> uh, they've seen typhoons before, and the birds that have survived all those typhoons have figured out ways to survive typhoons. And they just hunker down in nooks and crannies and ride it out. Mm -hmm. uh, the hard period for the birds uh, for survival is after the typhoon, because particularly things like uh, fruit doves and the ground doves uh, that, that eat fruit, they, there's no fruit, everything's off the trees. Uh, there's very few insects even uh, right after the storm, so that there's a lingering effect. Even so, all those species, and this would be true through the whole Pacific that, that gets typhoons or hurricanes or whatever they call it, the place you are. Uh, birds have evolved in the presence of typhoons, and they, they know how to deal with them. Mm. Or you know, they have characteristics that do deal with them one way or another. Uh, now, that's not, it's not to say that typhoons can't make some major damages. If things are already at a critical level and a typhoon comes through, well, then that's, that's another story. And we've got a case of that right now that's ongoing. Uh, you know, this recent hurricane that sat at Category 5 over Grand Bahama Island in the Bahamas. Right. Uh, for, two, for three days. I mean, it just, it just ground that island into a pulp. Uh, that's almost literally true. Mm. It's just a, it's still a terribly desperate situation there. I've, I've been to that island, and it was a beautiful place. And I look at the pictures now, and I just want to cry because it's just pathetic. Well, there were three endangered species of birds on that island whose habitat was completely destroyed. Hmm. I mean, by wind and by salt water, I mean, it's just leveled. Well, I'm, I'm afraid we may have lost those birds. Hmm. Um, we don't know yet. It'll, it'll be a while, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, just, uh, that's just the way it happened. In Hawaii, uh, we had a Hurricane Iniki that came through in, I guess, 1992, somewhere that year, or 93. But it was another Category 5 storm. And you have to understand that in Hawaii, uh, the native birds are all found at high elevations. And they're at high elevations to escape mosquitoes <coughs> that live in the lowlands of the islands and carry avian malaria. Now, both avian malaria and the mosquitoes are introduced invaders, mm -hmm. just like the brown tree snake was on Guam. So, you know, it's a totally unnatural situation to start with, and the populations are very low, and they're confined to these, uh, these high elevation forests. Well, it turns out that one of the adaptations that native Hawaiian birds had for riding out a hurricane was to fly from high in the mountains down into the lowland valleys where they could get out of the wind. Well, the birds on Kauai, when that hurricane came through, did the things that they had been doing for thousands of years to escape the hurricane, but they were flying into a death trap. They all got down there, they got avian malaria and died, and they never came back. And we, there were at least three species, maybe four, uh, that went extinct because of that hurricane. But 
you know, that's a very special circumstance. Right. Uh, birds of Guam, you, you get lots of typhoons, I'm, <laughs> I hate to say, but uh, yeah. But you do. Well, of course, I'm living in Hurricane Alley here in North Carolina, so I can't talk either. But, uh, you know, those birds were, were not going to be susceptible to something like that because they were in good, healthy population. Interestingly enough, before I went to the Kingdom Hall for the meeting, I sent to you this uh, Cornell University broadcast that was talking about 30% of the birds in the continental U.S. and Canada have declined. Um, right. That's a well, huge... I can for that just from my personal experience growing up in North America over that period of time. There were a lot more birds when I was a little boy than there are now. It's, just, it's, it's drastically noticeable. And what do you what do you think is the the reason for that? Are we taking over their environment by developing? Yes. yes. <laughs> the reason for it is that there t- there are too many people, <laughs> and uh, you know they they're taking up the habitat, paving over uh, whatever, and polluting the air and, hmm. and all the other things that go along with development. And uh, you know I don't mean to be a uh, I forget the term for it. Somebody who's opposed to progress. I'm not, but uh, it has its price. And, well, it's uh, true. I, I'm neither. I, I believe that you know we have to share this this wonderful place we call home. But every time we do it at the need of our growth, the population growth, it it will affect the most fragile, and that seems to be the animals. Right? They can't protect themselves. It, it certainly is so far. And, uh, yeah. They they don't they don't protest. <laughs> they have no yeah, way to exactly. protest. Well, they they do protest in a way silently. They just sort of disappear. disappear. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, so you've published a lot of work over the many years. How many books have you published? And you're currently working on one now, right? Yeah. Um, the book that Phil Bruner and I were working on is still in print, believe it or not, even though the publication date is 1987. Mm-hmm. That makes that some sort of a record. But uh, I'm currently with a new co-author, uh, Eric Vanderwerk, who lives in Hawaii, uh, is working with me now. Uh, with a new co-author, uh, I'm doing a, a book that will replace that. It will not be a second edition in the usual sense. In other words, uh, we're not going to do a second edition. We're going to do a different book that covers the same subject. Okay. If that makes sense. Uh, well, it'll be called, uh, the other one was Birds of Hawaii and the Tropical Pacific, and uh, we would have called that just Birds of the Tropical Pacific, but we wanted to get Hawaii in the title so it would sell. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, our new one is just, just going to be called that, Birds of the Tropical Pacific, Hawaii, Micronesia, and Polynesia. Okay, and how will this and be different if it's... we're going to use parts of the old book. We'll use some of the illust- reuse some of the illustrations and uh, add new ones and... Uh, uh, redo the text, uh, sort of using the old text as a basis. But in that period of time, since 1987, uh, there have been uh, a third again more birds recorded in the tropical Pacific than we knew of in 1987. So it's going to be a much bigger book. And that doesn't mean numbers of birds have increased, but just the number of species that people have seen on the Pacific Islands has increased greatly. Okay, well now I'm I'm one of those who has your 1987 publication, and mm-hmm. identifying the birds is a huge challenge for me because the, the they look similarly, and I know you can't devote an entire book to all their possible looks, but from the time they become chicks, 
or actually before that when they hatch from from the time they do that to the time they become adults and then you have all the se- you have the seasons you have the mating period and you have the soon after that when they start to molt that's all so confusing because they don't look the same but they're the same bird the problem is uh, for you uh, and the reason you you have the, that attitude which is a valid attitude by the way I'm not meaning to criticize that. No, no problem. The situation on Guam is such that the the only birds that are going to give you any problems with identification are shorebirds and uh, migratory waterfowl, primarily. Uh, That's what you go out every winter to to shoot, or the the ducks uh, on the various ponds and uh, birds along the shoreline. Well, those birds are notorious as two of the most difficult bird groups to deal with in the field because they have all these different plumages and each age has its own different plumage that's distinctive and some of them will mow partly into this and into that. I mean, it just it, it drives you crazy. And I remember as a young birder having a lot of trouble learning both of those groups of birds. They were tough. And, uh, you know, your ordinary songbirds, they're pretty much, once they leave the nest, they look pretty much like they're going to look most of their lives, except some birds have a summer plumage and a winter plumage, so mm-hmm. you get that alternation. But, uh, you know, they, they look, uh, you know, a bird like uh, one of our common birds, let's say the northern cardinal, which a lot of people call the red bird. And, uh, but it looks the same year-round. Mm-hmm. And once it's an adult, it, it looks like it's going to look the rest of its life. Uh, so, you know, those birds are a lot simpler to deal with. And, uh, so you just you were kind of forced into the, the situation of having to, to deal with the most difficult birds right off the bat. This is Arlene Live, and we've got more coming up in just a moment. Middle of the ocean, but this paradise is teeming with people with all sorts of amazing abilities. Benita Baby was nothing but hair accessories. <laughs> I had some little barrettes um, that we were making and headbands, our little like knit bow headbands, and that's all I started out with. And I decided shortly after you know I had been sewing for a little while that I was going to put it out there. Whether it's artists who create visual masterpieces, creatives inspiring others, people who compose and perform moving pieces of music, athletes taking their game to the next level, or entrepreneurs coming up with innovative solutions, there are a ton of folks here doing incredible things with their gifts. And I want to introduce them to all of you. Women, not just guys, women could come in and feel like they're there to train, they're going to be taken serious, they're, they're not going to be hit on by dudes, yeah. they're going to have their own space. You know, I mean, they're going to be respected as just another practitioner of of this martial art. I'm Jonagan Charfris, and I invite you to join me on the KUAM Podcast Network for Fistful of Talent, where I sit down with people discussing their visions and dreams and sharing the secrets of their success. In the avenues of, of, you know, being in the creative life and then what's what's the next thing? Just subscribe to the KUAM Podcast Network on SoundCloud iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher platform, and prepare to be amazed. That's Fistful of Talent each and every Friday. Thanks for listening. And now, let me get you back to your show. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network.
these are the ones that migrate here. So I, I don't have a choice. If I'm learning the most difficult birds uh, in how to identify them, then I think that's a, that's a good thing because if I can identify this. But part of it is because they're not here year-round. Mm-hmm. Right? They come well, here. Is that, yeah. You don't get to refresh your your knowledge every day, right? So they so they they migrate here from September through March, and when they migrate here, they're coming from somewhere where they just finished mating. Are there immatures flying with them? Oh, definitely. In fact, most birds you see, uh, particularly this time of year, in, in what I would call the fall month, uh, all, most of those are immature birds. They're birds that hatched this year. So they're young birds, and uh, they don't migrate at the same time as their parents. Uh, oddly enough, they are, uh, they are born with that map for migration implanted in their head like a chip, and they just, they just do it. Uh, but most of the birds you're seeing now as shorebirds and, and ducks are, are birds that have hatched this year, or quite a few of them. They nest in what we call the high Arctic, up in the tundra regions, uh, for the most, most part, ducks and, and the shorebirds. So they can't stay there during the winter, obviously, so they have to migrate. And they come south, and we're glad, as, as birders, we're glad they do, because they give us a big boost of excitement every year. And, uh, at the top of the world, that's the high Arctic. You know, it opens up for six months of the year, and uh, it has abundant insects and all sorts of things that baby birds need, but then it's going to freeze over for the other six months of the year, so the birds have got to leave. So that's why they call it wintering, right? Yes, yes. You said that because of the instinctive nature of the fact that they have to migrate, they do not migrate with the parents. Do they go before the parents or, or after the parents? Uh, um, you know, you, you, you've stumped me there. I'm not sure, and I'm not sure you can say in general. Uh, it would depend on the particular bird. I, I suppose most shorebirds, reason we see the tours uh, and the juveniles first is that they may leave first, but, I, but something in my head tells me that's wrong. So adults go and leave the, the kids behind, and the kids just have to figure it out on their own. I think that's how it works. Okay, so let's talk about that window that I have, because my window's from September, maybe even early August. Uh, yeah. We start seeing them arrive. So they come somewhere in August, maybe mid-August, uh, late August, and then they start disappearing literally from the, from the environment uh, about March, sometimes into May. It depends on what they are. Right. They'll always have a, a few stragglers, we call them, that just for one reason or another may even stay over the summer. But that's that's unusual. That's mm -hmm. not not the typical bird. Right, but let but let's talk about that early arrival. So, I've you know I've constantly going to the same footprint that I started when you introduced me to Joe Mancuso, and that's from Jeff mm -hmm. Spywitz Golf. Um, once in a while, I'll go down further to Ladin, the landfill, and then I go mm -hmm. up to Starts, and you know along uh, east of Ganya, Ganya Bay, and down to the port. I had that wonderful privilege of doing one year on Navy Base Guam, and there are birds that I captured over at Polaris Point, and I find that the biggest uh, attraction the birds go to are large bodies of water. Senna, unfortunately, does not attract the birds, and I think it's mm -hmm. because the food's just not there. You know, you have this large lake, but there's no food. Yeah, I think that's probably right. It's it's too deep. 
for most of those birds. Uh, even even the uh, diving ducks would probably not find what they were looking for there. Well, the one year that I did go there, I went there because I was saying something is wrong. The tufted ducks are nowhere to be found. I see them once in a while when they're at Lazen, but then when I saw them, they would fly south, and I said, they've got to be going to Fena. Well, when I went into Fena, that's where they were. And so I was fortunate to capture that. But, you know, I can't just keep doing that every year. You know, the Navy has bigger issues, and I'm just a, oh, sure. a nobody researcher that wants access. So I've pretty much resorted to other means, and that's being more regular, trying to be more regular, going to the spots I've gone. I've recently found the starts flock just this last week, so I've really been dedicating time to get back up there. You know, I started taking pictures of the starts flock in January 2018. Are you telling me that these ducks that are there now are possibly not the same as the ones I took last year? Oh, no, they, they could very well be the same, uh, but they'll have their, their uh, offspring uh, intermixed with them. Okay, so when I took those pictures of those coconut ducks, <laughs> that's what I call them because they ball up and look like coconuts, what threw yeah, me off? I never thought about that. What threw me off was one of them was really rust in the in the breast area when they ball up, and then the other yeah. one was light. So I thought, are these not the same? But you said they were the same. They were, they were the pintail females. Oh right, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What what accounts for that difference in the in the look? Well, uh, in the case of the the pintails, uh, and most ducks. For that matter, uh, the males and the females are have completely different plumages. That, so you you know they're like two different species almost. Uh, female ducks don't look like the drakes, right? So uh, you know the the female pintails are brown, uh, kind of rusty brown, like you described, and the males, of course, are very very elegant gray and white, and, uh, you know, beautifully patterned ducks, uh, rather than being just little little brown things. There's a period of time right after uh, nesting that male ducks molt into a plumage that looks like the female species. And some of them regrow the flight feathers early enough that they can migrate in that plumage. So when they first get here, they're going to look like females. But in the course of the winter, you're going to watch them change gradually, uh, sort of feather by feather, until the spring right before they head north. They're just beautiful uh, male ducks. So uh, they, they're kind of masquerading among the females uh, right now. You know what? I'd completely forgotten that point. So that means that I could be looking at the male and female of all these species, including the shovelers. Mm-hmm. Yes, you could. The shoveler is one that's known definitely to migrate in that uh, female-like plumage and then gradually change over the winter. I see them do that in Hawaii all the time. I don't know if what I notice is correct or not, so bear with me. With the shovelers, is the eye coloration is different. In the male, it's more yellow, more, what what do you call that color? I'd I'd call it golden, actually. Golden, okay. Yeah. Whereas the female is a little bit darker, right? I think so. Actually, I can check. I've got, got my... My own book right here in front of me. Okay. Yeah, the reason I'm saying that is when I was watching their the plumage change last year as I tracked them, 
the one with the golden eyes yeah. turned into the drake. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The females have brown eyes. Okay, good. So then this is a pair that I've spotted yesterday and the day before. So yesterday I counted them, the, I counted the flock. I sat at one pond for about two and a half hours, all three hours, and just when I decided to give up, the traffic of the golfers forced me to go another route. When I took that other route, there were the pintails, and there were the shovelers. So now I'm wise. I'm going to start looking at these different ponds because I've, I had a tendency of just going to one and then, you know, bearing it out. But mm-hmm. I counted a total of 16 in this flock yesterday not including the, the uh, Eurasian widgeons, which I'm still convinced, Doug, one of them has got to be an American. I just have well, to prove I, it. I looked at it closely, and I, I, I don't think so, but it's, it's possible. I'm uh, convinced. Images of those two that are really hard to, to tell. Right. And, uh, so you just have to wait and see how, how it looks. Uh, keep following the same bird and see how it looks in a few months. Yes, I'm, and I intend to do that. I want, I really want to get there when they're bathing themselves, which is so cute, and then when they stretch their wings so that I can get the under mm-hmm. uh, wing part for you to, to convince that there's one, at least one American widgeon in this group. So that's going to be my job to monitor them this year. Yeah. Well, so, that's a rare bird, and if you can document that for a second year, that would be great. You had one last year. Yes. We were all excited about. So, yes. Yeah. So tell me about the book. It's going to be a different format from the old one uh, with the uh, color pictures on the page facing the text. So there will be uh, fewer species per plate, uh, as we used to call them. You wouldn't call them plates now. I'm not sure what you call them, but uh, a page with pictures on it. Um, That has changed uh, because of technology uh, Mm. over the years. In 1987... We were still doing what they called four-color offset, and color printing was extremely expensive. So the publisher always wanted you to have as few color plates as you could possibly get by with. Which they is sad. A lot of birds onto that. Well, yeah, but it was just the fact of life at the time. Right. Uh, now, with the digital techniques of both photography and printing, well, color is, is about the same price as black and white. So you can have lots of color in a book. Uh, so we we have the privilege of having half of the pages as color hmm. uh, pages in this book, or nearly half. Uh, there's some things in the front and the back that make it not quite half, but uh, uh, it'll be a different format, like I say, and having the fewer birds on the page to compare, you can show a lot more detail. I'll be able to show birds in flight that I only showed perched and, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, more information. Uh, is, is all I can say, and, and I think that will really be a good thing. I think so, too. Uh, now, you, you said something that it will not be a second edition. Why have a second edition rather than what you're doing, which is a new book? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's got such a different format, uh, that, and it's got a different co-author on it. Okay. Uh, so I, you know, both the publisher, which is Princeton University Press, uh, uh, they and, and I agreed that we shouldn't, we should avoid calling it a second edition, although functionally that's what it is. But it's really a new book. I, I like the idea of of new books. I don't, I don't get the second edition part. You know, um, no. it, I, I think that a book should be about new information. Um, 
and just call it a different book. <laughs> well, that's, uh, well, there's an old saying uh, among writers that new information, people say, oh, well, it's all this new information. The, the reply is that's what second editions are for. Uh, stuff that you didn't know when you wrote the first one. So uh, in, in that sense, it is the second edition. And there's been a tremendous amount of new information to come out in the last 20 years, just right. unbelievably. So uh, it, it'll, it'll be a different book. Okay, well, I'll look forward to it, and I definitely want a signed copy. Well, well don't, don't hold your breath. It's not going to happen in months. It'll happen in years. But uh, well, you at least I'm back to working on it. And you, you always say that, but then you produce. So I'm just saying I, want, I, I look forward to my copy. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll be, it, won't be de- it won't be decades. So. Right. <laughs> we'll look at it that way. Don't go away. There's more coming up with Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. I'm Ken Nicholas, and I love movies. No, I mean I really love movies. And if there's one thing I enjoy more than dissecting plots, questioning casting choices, and challenging scenes, it's debating with my friends and their opinions about their favorite flicks. You can't handle the truth! So join me and my cohort of cinephiles each and every Tuesday for Real Talk, right here on the KUAM Podcast Network. I live my life a quarter mile at a time. We cover best of lists, actors' top roles, and don't pull any punches when it comes to giving props about what's big on the silver screen, streaming, and on video. Ah, I'm Just make sure to bring your own popcorn. So lock in our show by subscribing to our feed on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, or on your favorite podcatcher platform. That's right, Janice. What's it made of? Your mom's chest hair. That's Real Talk, each Tuesday, right here as part of the KUM Podcast Network. Speaking of which, let's go back to your show. I guess the only thing I can say is I'll promise to keep rocking and rolling and making better films. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. You know, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, when I got ill, uh, I just had to put on hold. The publisher understood that. Well, you know, when you're well, come back and talk to us. And we've just uh, last year signed a new contract. Congratulations to that. Now, you you, um, mentioned something about mentoring and and the difficulty in learning about birds. What is the largest challenge about learning about birds? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I I know the answer to that. Well, Uh, I mean, you you complimented me by saying that I've been able to grasp you know, what you're trying to convey to me. How has it been different for others? Uh, well, I don't know that it, that it is that different uh, for others. It's just, you know, some people are, are brighter than others. That's it. It's just uh, <laughs> uh, the, the facts of life. And, you know, the, the smart people get things quickly, and the people who aren't so smart uh, take a while. So, well, thanks uh, for that, then. I like to say that it, uh, that's just, just the way the ball bounces, but uh, uh, I don't know. Well, the, 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 your question was, what's the biggest challenge in... In learning about birds. In learning, oh, well, just from the student's perspective. Well, 
it's something that you have not looked at critically before, and you have to learn how to look at things differently. Um, and I won't say look at things better. You just have to look at them differently. I had a close friend uh, who was a, uh, a musician friend of mine, and uh, he was taking a, a degree in general studies at LSU. He was an undergraduate. I was a graduate student. And he knew that I was the, the teaching assistant in the ornithology course. And so he, he had to have one credit in science. And he thought, well, I'll just sign up for this ornithology. Friend, <laughs> you know, the teaching assistant, how bad can it be, blah, blah, blah. So he did, and he told me after he graduated uh, a couple of years later, he said, you know, of all the courses I took as an undergraduate, the most important one to me was ornithology. And I said, well, why? He said that was the only one that significantly broadened my horizon. Mm. He said, I never saw birds before. I never noticed them before. I can't go anywhere now and not see birds and wonder what kind of bird that is. Exactly. And sometimes go and look it up. Exactly. And he said it just it's it given a life and aspect that it didn't have before. So. You, you know, to the same to the same credit, the bird photos that I share with you know people on my contact list, mm -hmm. I send it out on WhatsApp, and the comments, the commenting back, it's like, where did you see this? This is on Guam. It's like total disbelief. And then mm -hmm. I'll get photographs from cell phones. They'll, they'll take a picture of a bird. They see it, uh, you know, while they're out and about. They go, Arlene, you have changed my life. I can't now not, <laughs> not look for birds. And yeah. that, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think so. That's just absolutely wonderful. And so, you know, when I'm driving, I'm always on the lookout for birds, too. And, um, and I've, we've cre I think we've created more awareness of them. So on Guam, when people say there are no birds, what does that mean when the birds are here? Well, it partly means there are no songbirds, uh, the kind of birds that that you have in the trees in your backyard and used to have in the trees in your backyards on Guam. Uh, that's what most people think of when they think of birds. They're not really thinking about ducks or sandpipers uh, or uh, seabirds, that sort of thing. All of those groups are still on Guam because they don't, they don't depend on Guam as a place to nest. They just, they're just passing through or you know, uh, hanging around on the ocean and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the birds that used to build their nests and raise their families in the trees that, around the places you, you go, uh, those birds are pretty much gone, and it's a shame. Okay, so since we're there, those birds, gone means extinct, correct? Yes. There are some of them that can be brought back. I, I should make a, a distinction here. Uh, a bird that is extinct is gone forever, never to return. So you, you need to use that term precisely. Uh, we use the term extirpated for a bird whose population in a given place has died out, but it still survives somewhere else. For example, uh, the Mariana fruit dove uh, has died out on Guam. It's extirpated on Guam. But you can go to Rota and see them, or to Saipan. And are they the same species? They're the same species. And there's evidence that they always did move 
from one island to the other, at least occasionally, particularly, uh, for example, after a, a typhoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fruit doves, you know, if the typhoon hits Guam and it doesn't hit uh, Saipan, you might fly to Saipan just to find something to eat. So we have seen, for example, fruit doves on Guam uh, in recent times. It just, you know, just a bird shows up here and there. Right. And it's one that just, just happened to fly there from Rota, probably. So, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing, you can restore those. Uh, if we find a way to manage the, the tree snakes, we can restore that. And we can restore quite a few of the others. The, the one bird that is gone absolutely and forever, never to return, is uh, called the Guam flycatcher. And it, it was found only on Guam, not anywhere else, and it is gone. There are none in captivity. Now, you have the uh, the Guam rail, the, the bird we call Coco. Um, that one has been uh, introduced on Rota to provide a wild population, and on Cocos Island, uh, which is off of the mm-hmm. south coast of Guam. And, you know, if we could control the, the snakes, uh, you could bring them back to mainland Guam, presumably. Uh, same thing for uh, the ground doves and the fruit doves. Well, I mentioned fruit doves already. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, oh, the other bird particularly is the uh, Guam kingfisher, which was only found on Guam, but there is a good population of them being maintained in various zoos in North America. So, you know, they have the material to release them again um, if we can control the snakes. Mm-hmm. When you talk about um, reintroducing birds, are the birds in the CNMI collectively, Saipantinian and Luta, all the same Mm -hmm. species that used to be on Guam? What we have are some some birds that are uh, what we would call endemic, meaning found nowhere else. Some birds are endemic to the whole Mariana chain. In other words, they're on all of the islands, but they're not on other island chains. Within that, you have certain birds that are found only on one island in the Marianas. The Guam flycatcher was an example. Uh, Rota or Luta, I, I don't get the Chamorro <laughs> pronounced yeah, right. Luta. But, uh, uh, but that island uh, has white eye on it. That is uh, a rare and endangered species. It's found only on that island. Uh, and it's not on Saipan or Guam or anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Guam has the golden honey eater. Uh, that well, I'm dating myself there. That's what it used to be called. It's a white eye, too. The golden white eye is found on Saipan and nowhere else. Hmm. Uh, so, and Tinian has a bird called the Tinian monarch, found only on that island and nowhere else. So, uh, you know, uh, some things are throughout the, the chain, and, well, like, like the fruit doves, the ground doves hmm. uh, that I mentioned. Uh, the northern Marianas have a different kingfisher from Guam. Uh, Guam had a smaller kingfisher that was rusty underneath, and uh, from Luta northward, you find this uh, white-headed or white uh, bird with white underparts and a blue back uh, called a uh, white-headed kingfisher. Which, by the way, you... Uh, actually, it's called, uh, we've gone through some different names for it. Uh, it's the Mariana kingfisher. It's a Mariana kingfisher, and when, we, when you and I exchanged email on that, you said that you had always thought, based on the call of that bird, that it was what? It, it has been thought for many years to be a subspecies of a species of kingfisher that's found all the way from the Red Sea to Samoa. Uh, it's called the collared kingfisher. Uh, they all look sort of vaguely alike, uh, but uh, this bird sounded different to me, and it looked different as well, uh, but I didn't really 
have a good idea of, of uh, what it was until I looked up the call of a bird that's found on islands in the Solomon Islands in uh, northern New Guinea called the beach kingfisher. And it looks for all the world like this uh, Mariana kingfisher. Uh, in fact, it has two color forms, just like uh, the Mariana bird. The one on, on, on Luta is a little different. It has a little more blue on the top of the head than the others do. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the beach kingfisher. But the beach kingfisher is much bigger. So nobody had really made that connection. And I said, well, it's just another one of those collared fisher, kingfisher things mm. you know, that are all over the place. Well, then I found a recording of the beach kingfisher, and I thought, well, there you go. That sounds just like the bird on Saipan, or certainly enough like it, that, that I thought, well, it's a good chance. And then uh, a woman named uh, uh, Alice Sidwai and a team of researchers uh, ran the DNA on kingfishers of, of the whole region, and lo and behold, uh, the Mariana kingfisher comes out as a as a sister group, we call it, uh, mm. to the beach kingfisher. So uh, my instinct was right. I, I couldn't have proven it without the DNA to back it up. But uh, it's not. It's nice to be right. Yes, it is. It's wonderful to be right. So speak to me then about speciation. I mean, if if a bird uh, and and in association to that, I have to ask you, who are the bird name gods? Because they have confused me to no end. One year, it's this name. The next year, it's another name. Why do the names change so much? Well, the, uh, the Latin names actually don't change that much. Um, the, some DNA research in recent years has made it seem like they change more often than they do. Uh, they're pretty much, yeah, and there's a, there's a set of rules called a, uh, uh, international rules of zoological nomenclature, and everybody goes by that for any kind of animal name. Right. So that's the Latin name, you know, the scientific name. Uh, English names, there's no uh, no standardized uh, list of names uh, for the whole birds of the world. There are several different ones. I mean, we have lists of English names for the birds of the world, but they don't always agree. Mm-hmm. And then one, if you find that uh, something, that the relationship of some bird, but because of a DNA study, like the thing with the kingfisher, well, you, it, as it turned out, we didn't have to change any names in that case. But, uh, well, I guess we did because we, now we're calling it the Mariana kingfisher right. instead of collared kingfisher. Right. Uh, but that, that, that's where you have to change. Well, then, then you've got to come up with names that everybody agrees on. And we're getting there. Uh, I've been one of these... Uh, uh, people that everybody loves to hate <laughs> on uh, one of the English names committees, and why well, I've been ah. through a lot of fights with those folks because even the people on the committee don't agree among themselves. And, and you know, when you've got several competing names uh, in English, then uh, you know it's always a problem. Uh, but the International Ornithological Congress, which is a thing that meets every four years, it's sort of the Olympics of ornithology. Okay, met. Last year in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, and that was the closest one in years. So I went to it, and one of the things that came out of it was a meeting, uh, a roundtable, with all of the various competing English names authorities in the same room. And the, the upshoot of it is that they're going to try to reconcile all of the different competing English name lists by the next 
Congress, which will be in four years. It's just the Olympics in that sense, too. And that one will be in Australia. Oh, okay. So, uh, anyway, we may eventually have an official list of English names for all the birds of the world. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Stay where you are. The conversation continues with Arlene Live when we come back. Start your day the KUAM way with our new streaming shows on Facebook Live each weekday. Here's your starting lineup. Mondays, we'll give you a glimpse into our morning meetings with the KUAM news team. Tuesdays, join our group chat with Chris Barnett. Wednesdays, it's crime time with the island's law enforcers. Thursdays, get the latest info with Dave Delgado, who's in the zone. And Fridays, we get Fit AF, fitness and fun. And the best part, all our shows are completely interactive, so you're directly part of the conversation. Join us Monday through Friday starting at 9 a.m. Start your day the KUAM way. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Again, don't hold your breath, but, uh, you know, at least people are working on it. Well, and the reason I'm asking is, you know, when I want to identify a bird, and I run things through you, so thank you very much for always being there to cover me, but when I try to identify a bird, I went back to when I started this, and I'm looking at my folders, and it's confusing me because it's like, wait a minute, what is that bird? Is that the same as, oh my goodness, it's the same as this bird. When, yeah. you know, because the name is different, and then when I send it for for verification of an identification of the bird you tell me you know it's this name and then i look at i look online and it's got all these other names and it's like i want to know who these bird name gods are and i didn't know i know one <laughs> well it, yeah guilty as charged <laughs> i'm not an actual member of that committee uh, but uh, it's the one that the, the international ornithological congress had its own committee uh chaired by a man named frank gill uh, who's an ornithologist in New York and a good friend of mine. And uh, I'm an advisor to ah. that group. I'm not actually on the committee. So I'm you're not a god, you're a super god. <laughs> well, I, I'm a consultant. A consultant. Whatever you want to call it. I, honestly, I appreciate the work. I appreciate the fact that someone's trying to name it. But as a student who's trying to be on top of things, it throws me off because it's like, when, when did this change? How do I get notification that this particular bird name has changed? Well, you won't, and, uh, and that's that part of the problem. And uh, as I say, when you're dealing with English names, well, this this would be true. You know, pick a language, mm-hmm. and they're going to have their own names for all the birds of the world. Well, Which we do in tomorrow. I I'm so well. There you go. You I'm so happy. Have all the birds of the world, but at least no. at least the ones that, that you know locally. Well, you know what's interesting? Uh, yeah, exactly. what, yeah, what was interesting for me is that they, that our ancestors actually named the migratory birds. Well, the ones that were common, for sure. Yes. Uh, the, the little, the ones that only show up a few a, a year, uh, they wouldn't have so much. But uh, certainly, the, the wimbrel and uh, uh, probably the common green shank had a name. Maybe. Uh, well, the doolily word, the do, the word doolily. That's uh, the tattler. Right. It is a, is a sound that is associated to all those shorebirds. And so they well, just call know, them the, doolily. The Hawaiian, name, the Hawaiian name for that same bird is oolily without the D on it. Oh, really? So, yep. 
actually a lot of uh, what we call local names or native names, uh, whatever you want, what term you want to use, right. uh, like the Chamorro name. Uh, a lot of those uh, imitate the sounds of the bird. Yeah, actually, a lot of English names imitate the sounds of the bird. The characteristics too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful that somebody did it. So I use what's there, and I submitted the names to the Chamorro Language Commission, and they came out with an official list. So now I'm following that, and and I keep well, and, and I well, keep. Well, I, you're one of the naming gods. No, no, no. I'm just. The, I'm just the, like you. You're not the artist. I'm not the god. I'm just educating yeah. people on what it is. I'm the. I'm the transition committee. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, um, you know, having said that, I, I I remember now that you sent me an email that you were going to Canada, but I didn't realize, you know, that this this meeting uh, was what what the purpose of it was and just how far well, reaching. Well, that wasn't the purpose of the whole meeting. I and in fact, I didn't know that was, that meeting was going to happen until I was there. Ah. Uh, so it was a surprise, but it turned out for me to be the most important thing that happened while I was up there. Absolutely. It's far-reaching. Oh, yes. Yeah. So the other day, Doug, um, you, you said, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that you've come out to the Western Pacific. How far out did you come when you were studying the birds? Well, pretty much the area that uh, is covered in, in my field guide. Uh, in fact, okay. that's what, what we were doing, was to go to the islands that are covered by that book. Um, now, Phil... Uh, is married to a woman from Tahiti, and he had lived in Tahiti for a year and studied birds uh, there and in other parts of French Polynesia. Okay. And so we didn't need to include that in our expeditions, um, but we didn't know anything about Micronesia. And we made, uh, let's see, two, it was three, anyway, uh, several trips to Micronesia, mm -hmm. and one that went to uh, Fiji and Samoa. And that kind of filled in the the major island groups that we needed to cover. So between the two of us, we, we had those covered. So uh, our, our field work, or certainly mine in the 70s, was uh, in Hawaii, Micronesia, and then uh, the western part of Polynesia, Fiji, Samoa. Uh, so. Okay. You know, someone sent me a photograph of a bird, one of the boobies, the brown booby, that mm -hmm. they found in one of the outer islands of Yap on their way down to Setawal. And it's mm -hmm. actually the first island, I believe, that you run into from Guam heading to Setawal or heading down to Yap. And I was told, um, and actually it was Leo Pangalinen, who's the executive director of the Northern Marianas Humanities Council, who sent me the photo. And he said that when they were on it, it was, there's, there's no human habitation. It's all birds and wildlife. And he mm -hmm. said that it was so loud because there were so many birds. And I thought, that's the kind of place I want to go. And I'm, oh, yeah. that's the kind of place where the birds don't know humans, they don't have any distrust for them, so you could come up close to a bird and photograph it for hours without it getting away from you. Right. Well, if you think about it, almost all of those birds are what we call seabirds. They come to islands to nest and raise their young, and then they go out to sea. Exactly. And uh, they don't come to land after that, so they don't really have any opportunity to develop a fear of humans the way ducks do, for example, that are hunted all the time. Mm. So uh, when they come to land, they're, they're not afraid of people. It's just something else, any more than they're afraid of, of a seal or a turtle. 
Ah, They're just another animal. Just to them. yeah, another species, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. The only other thing that I can think about is, you know, your your interest in music. How does that dovetail into the work, or is that just a, a separate passion of yours? Do you write well, songs about birds? I do. I do not. That's just like uh, I was describing <laughs> that I'm terrible at uh, at creative writing. I can't write a song to save my life. <laughs> so what? What is the but, interest in but music? I can play, and I, oh. and I uh, you know, I play a couple of instruments. I because I'm from North Carolina, I guess, but I, I got interested in the folk music of this area, and and in particular bluegrass and. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I play with some bluegrass groups uh, around here, and uh, when I do that, I usually uh, play an instrument called a dobro, which is a, a type of steel guitar. Um, but my real claim to expertise has to be on a different instrument, which is called an auto harp, and you probably don't even know what that is. Nope. Uh, but it's a it's a box of strings, basically, uh, 36 strings with some uh, bars that you push down to control the chords you're playing, and Anyway, I, I, my grandmother played it, and that's how I got into ah. it years ago. And uh, for some reason, I just seemed to have a knack for that instrument. And I, since I just won the bragging rights, I can tell you that uh, just last month at a festival in Winfield, Kansas, that hosts the thing every year, I won the International Auto Heart Championship. My goodness, congratulations! <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I was pleased. I, I have won it once before, but it was a long time ago. So is this... Part of my recovery, I'm back. Yes. What, what is the name of the instrument? That's a, it sounds like a precursor it, to well, a guitar. Well, it, it's a type of zither, uh, actually. Uh, in other words, it's a box with lots of strings uh, on the, strung across the top, uh, flat, and it was originally designed to be played sitting on a table. Oh. Uh, but people have learned to pick them up and, and hold them against the chest and, and play uh, standing up that way. Uh, so, you know, it's it's turned out, it's one of those things that was probably invented as a toy and it turned out to be more of an instrument an than instrument. the inventor even realized he was inventing. Huh. So, uh, there are enough people that play it to have an international championship. But, uh, well, congratulations so. for that. But I, I just, you know, I have a... a uh, a knack for music, I guess. I, I like music, and I like playing music. But I didn't want to go to all the tedious hard work uh, to be a professional musician. That just didn't appeal to me, really. Right. Uh, it's a wonderful hobby, and uh, that's that's all I want it to be. A hobby, Everybody yeah. Everybody should have something that just you know, is completely different. When I get just completely burned out painting birds, I play music. That's not going to happen. So, well, no, but I mean, I, I go back and forth between them. I find that I can work intensely uh, on painting for about three months. Huh? And then toward the end of that period, I'll just start, you know, at the first of it, I'll be cranking out maybe five birds a day, you know, at, at an hour apiece and some peripheral time. Uh, by the end of it, I'll have, be having trouble getting through one or two, and I'll think, okay, it's time to take a breather, and that's when I'll play some music, or, do, or write something, do yeah, something completely different yeah. for a while. And, you know, that's really an interesting point, because I, I'm the same way with the work. My bird birding, uh, you know, time takes me away mm-hmm. from what I have to do so that I can get it done. Um, yep. I have to step back away from it, and then I recharge myself and come back, and I have 
I just breeze right through what I got to get done that I've been kind of lagging on, you know. Absolutely, I think a lot of a lot of bosses don't realize that that their employees need a break, uh, maybe fairly frequently, to stay fresh. You're just you know, you can't just uh, trudge away at something forever. Well, I'm I'm my own boss. <laughs> well, I I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm the same way. I've, I've you know you can't be self-employed for thirty years yeah. and make a living at it without being a pretty difficult boss. So uh, yeah. well, I always tell people I'm harder on myself than you. So be grateful for that. <laughs> oh well. Hey Doug. Well, I'm pretty hard on you. Too. That's saying something. I, I am very hard on myself. I I drive. Well, I, I wasn't at first. You really? know, but I learned that you could take it, and you, you took it, took criticism in just the right spirit. Oh. Uh, you know, it's a learning opportunity, and uh, not not something you would take personally. I I submit everything I do for criticism. I want to flesh it out. I want to be able to hear what, and I have no problem when people say, um, "Nope, that's not right." That's yep. what I'm asking you to do when I send something to you. You sure. know. Well, that's what I figure, and uh, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. And like I say, it's so much fun opening one of your emails because I know there's going to be a really nice photograph in there somewhere. Thank Maybe you. Maybe a new, new bird for Guam or, you know, who knows. Yeah. So tell me why I struggle with the the gray-tailed toddler, and you're saying the wandering toddler doesn't come here, just the gray tail? No, you have more gray tails than wandering, but you the wandering does come to Guam. Um it's more of an Eastern Pacific thing, and the great, the so-called great tail is more of a Western. I hate that name, by the way. That's one of those name controversies that I've been involved in. A much better name would be Siberian tattler because it nests in Siberia, okay. whereas the wandering nests in Alaska uh, in, in general. That's not being precise. Okay. But okay. Uh, uh, anyway, they stuck the name gray tailed on it uh, to distinguish it from the wandering tattler, which also has a gray tail. But one is longer, right? No, not really. Oh. They, they look very similar, and it has nothing to do with the differences. Have nothing to do with the tail. Oh, I don't know why they focused on that. I don't know where that name came from, but it's <laughs> what I call a stupid name. It's like calling a crow the black-headed crow when it's black all over. <laughs> right? Hey, you forgot. You forgot that that Luta has the crow. In the Mariana chain. Yes, and Guam used to have that. I was forgetting about the crow, but that's one that could be brought back, mm-hmm. you know, from the, the birds on, on uh, Luta, although they're not doing all that well on, on Luta. It's an endangered species. Right. That's another one we have to keep an eye on. I asked you, but I don't think we answered it. How does speciation occur? Don't go away. There's more coming up with Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. What's up, fellow online addicts? I'm Asha, and it's literally my job to scour the internet every day to see what you guys are saying about our stories and to see what you're snarking on. If you got beef with a particular island issue, we'll give your voice an extra boost on trend spotting. It's our weekly rundown of everything that's got you buzzing and what conversations you can't look away from. From the serious to the silly, from ludicrous news to legit headlines, from the weirdest Instagram posts to the most retweeted stories, 
introduced to the insane DMs we get, we're going to show you the deeper side of what's making group chats, what's trending, and what you're sharing. So check out Trendspotting on YouTube, on Facebook Live, and on IGTV, all at KUAM News. If you've got something to say, sound off. We'll find you. And now, back to your show right here on the KUAM Podcast Network. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Okay, now you're, you're asking me for uh, an hour lecture in about five minutes. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll give you the best I can for, for a short period of time. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's, uh, since we're talking about islands, that's very convenient, because I always use islands as the, the best example, or the easiest to understand example. All right, let's say uh, you have a bird on island A, and then there's island B sitting over here. And this bird on island A, uh, for one reason or another, let's say a flock of them decide to fly over to island B, and they like island B, so they stay there and they start reproducing. So now you've got two populations of this bird, one on island A and one on island B, and at first, they're just the same thing. But it turns out there are things about island B that are a little different from island A. It might have a different, uh, some different other species on it than island A does, or it might have a different kind of forest, a slightly different habitat, uh, anything. It doesn't matter what it is. It's going to be different. It's not going to be identical. Well... And then you have things that just sort of happen by accident. Uh, let's say the, the birds on island A uh, sing a song that goes tweet, 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 and then the birds on island B sing the song the same way at first. But then when they've been separated for a long time, and we're talking millions of years here, mm. uh, maybe just by accident and by drift or whatever, uh, the birds on island B are singing tweet, tweet, tweet instead of tweet, tweet, tweet. Well, that might be an important difference to the birds. When it comes time to pair up, they're going to look for a bird who sounds like what they're used to hearing. Hmm. Uh, so a bird from Island B might not recognize Island A. You might say that they now speak different languages. This happens with human languages, if you think about it. Yes. You know, there's this whole family of uh, Polynesian languages, Tahitian and Samoan and, and Hawaiian, uh, the Maori and all of those things. And there are certain similarities among them, but they're not identical and they're not mutually intelligible necessarily. Some mm-hmm. of them are. But, uh, but that just sort of happened by custom and by happenstance. Well, the same thing will happen with, with birds. Birds have culture too. And uh, so this provides what we call an isolating mechanism. That's something that keeps those populations isolated if they come back together. Let's say a flock of birds from Island B decides to do the same thing that the ones from Island A did many, many millions of years ago and fly back to Island A, and they like Island A, and they settle in. But these Island A birds are not talking the way they talk, so they don't get together and mate. Hmm. And they are, at that point, two different species because their gene pools have completely separated. Okay. Very interesting. And, so it, and it's biological species are, is a population of birds that can all interbreed among themselves, but not with other groups like that. So 
so that's that's how they form. That's very, it's one of it's one of many ways, but that's a that's a fairly straightforward one in birds. Yeah, that's very interesting that it would be the sound that distinguishes that because I thought it would be the sight. I thought there was something. I mean, oh, it can be. It, I could equally have said, well, the birds on Island B, uh, instead of having a. a, a white stripe over their eye, they have a yellow stripe over their eye. Mm. You know, it could have been anything that, that happened either by accident or because the environment was shaping it in a certain direction. We don't know, but those differences, uh, and usually it's a combination of things. I, I just isolated one thing to talk about. It could very easily be plumage color differences, uh, differences in song that, that, that I talked about. Uh, could be a difference in size even, or mm. any number of things. Any way that the two birds can tell themselves apart and on that basis do not interbreed. That's pretty fascinating to me because, like I said, I thought it was associated to perhaps visual since they plume. They, they have different plumage, right? They have seasons. Right. So I well, thought first, for sure. Things. They're, they're visual and they're auditory. Of course. Right? And they... Uh, those two things work together quite often, and uh, and both are important uh, yeah. in birds. Okay. In, in some other other things, in mammals, uh, a lot of times the differences are in in what the animal smells like, what we call pheromone. Huh. And, you know, they, they, that might separate them, uh, but it's less visual because they they are mostly nocturnal. They don't don't see each other in the same way that birds see each other in the daytime. So color is not so important to mammals. Yeah, I mean, I've you know, you talk. We talk about the ducks earlier. The drakes are just incredibly handsome creatures. Yep. Incredible. Why do they need to molt like that for a female to agree to mate? Well, that, that's another hour lecture on something <laughs> that's called sexual selection. <laughs> and in, in that case, the what's driving the evolution of those gaudy plumages is the female birds of themselves. In other words, uh, they'll, they'll pick, if you go to New Guinea, there's a spectacular group of birds called the Birds of Paradise. Oh, they are. And they're incredible looking things. The males are, but the females all look kind of alike. They're all little brown things. Right, you know, pretty bland. Yeah, So, uh, it, but it's those females that are bringing us the males that we were so impressed with. I, I've watched some of the videos on YouTube, and it just cracks me up how much... To what extent the male will go to convince the female, you know, that I'm worth oh, reading. And I was reading up on, on the boobies, how the feet of the booby is one that attracts them to the female. The, the, yeah. That you could tell whether the, the DNA was a good one that you wanted to mate with. And I thought, if only women could be that selective, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and if men could only be that performed. I mean, it's incredible the degree that they go through. Humans are too smart. They've they've learned to imitate uh, things that are not r really true to them. But uh, so you have to have to deal with frauds. Birds are not usually frauds. They're usually exactly what you see is what you get. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that part of this is that animals, specifically birds, that we're talking about, don't mate for pleasure where we do. Well, that's true. That's true. They, it's, it's, a, it's a strong instinctive force to mate, but uh, they, don't, they don't appear to get much pleasure out of it. And mating is a very brief sort of thing. It's almost like a kiss uh, to us. And it's just, you know, a few seconds and it's over, and, and then they act like nothing ever happens. But in addition to that, it almost appears as if it's only seasonal. It's like, are they sterile when they're not in mating season? 
in some cases, yeah, I think that's right. I think the uh, you know the eggs are only ready at a certain time, uh, a certain time of year, and uh, you know it, it wouldn't they they wouldn't even try to mate at other times of the year. Whereas humans are are ready to mate all the time. All the time, but and even even most mammals are not. Out of that season, they're just not interested. You know, that crossed my mind as I observed the birds here. It's like, why don't I see these birds mating? The only birds that I see mating are the native birds, which, you know, like the kak kak mm-hmm. and, and the sali and the coco, which you know I've caught in the wild, mm-hmm. and the pulatat. But I don't see that on the migratory birds. So I thought, do these birds, like, lose their sense of mating instinct when they leave their home? Yeah, well, that's right. They don't they don't have that uh, in their repertoire when they're on what we as you said earlier the wintering grounds. They, they just they're on vacation then. They can't be bothered. <laughs> well, and then and then if they did, they would have to leave their offsprings here. Where would they migrate to? Right? Exactly. Exactly. So it would break. It would, wouldn't survive there. Yeah, it would break that uh, course of of wintering and summering and mating, or spring rather. Yes, spring. Yep. Fascinating what you could learn. Absolutely fascinating what you could learn from these things. And what an appreciation. I, I've, you've turned me on into a wonderful hobby. I appreciate it so much. Well, it has been my pleasure, and I hope it will continue for a long time. You've been a, a, a great help, actually, uh, to me, because you have caused me to think about some things about identification of birds that I will use in, in my new book. Aww. And it will be uh, new information, and uh, plus some photographs that I'm going to use. I'm going to rip off as models for some of my illustrations. You're welcome to use my photos if that's what you're saying. <laughs> oh, well, I, I knew that a long time ago. Yeah. So, Doug, what what did do I ask or that you're talking about specifically in identification? Well, I learned a lot about uh, the. Uh, how to tell American widgeons from Eurasian widgeons huh. when we were trying to identify that bird last year. Hmm. And uh, we went round and round, you, you and uh, Gary Wiles, and I, you might mention Gary Wiles. Yes, so yes, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just I dug out every source I could find. I looked at probably thousands of pictures online. And I, I just just kept digging. And uh, I think we finally got it, uh, got it nailed, and that'll be in the new book. And I'll have illustrations to show those things. Wonderful. And, uh, so it's uh, it's greatly improved uh, the final product. I you know I I don't and I mean I felt very compromised because I'm the newbie and there's these you know there's Gary Wiles and you and I'm not I all I can say is no I'm I'm convinced <laughs> beyond a doubt this is the American widgeon and I was so grateful when when that mm-hmm. all came together because. I, I, I honestly... Well, it may be. You know, I'm not saying it's not. It's just, at first glance to me, I thought it was uh, Eurasian, and the one bird with its wings up what definitely was. So, you know, we'll just have to see how, how that bird looks later on. Well, it's my mission to can look for the underpit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like we say, I need to go back for fat-fat shots. That's what we call underarm here. So I need oh, fat-fat okay. shots for the birds. Okay, well, is there anything else? Oh, and by the way, what other protégés have you had other than me? I'm curious. Oh, gosh, I, I'm just on spur of the moment. It would be hard to list a bunch of people. But oh, I'm you don't have to. Yeah. Are, are they, have they been students? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. as you recall, I, I was the 
teaching assistant in the ornithology course at LSU for a couple of years. Yes. And, uh, you know, I had all those students, and uh, um, so, you know, I would count those among the many, but uh, uh, particularly among bird artists. Uh, people always ask, well, you mean you didn't go to art school to learn this? And I right. No, art school would have talked me out of it. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, bird artists learn by talking to other bird artists. Hmm. That's been my experience, and I think that still is the case. Uh, we share information. And, uh, if I have a question about something relating to uh, painting techniques or whatever, I'll call uh, one of quite a few bird artists that I know and, and ask, and uh, they're all, always willing to share. So it's a matter of just uh, uh, the community teaching itself, I, I guess you could say. Hmm. That's true among birders as well. Yeah, we know. There's a small group of birders on Guam, but you know, I've to me, birding is such an isolated hobby that when I go out and I'm minimizing my movements, the sound, I turn off my cell phone vibrate. I mean, I I check it frequently to see if my husband's trying to reach me or if there's you know one of my kids. But mm-hmm. I I really minimize my movement to to just around my body, nothing else. And if I get thirsty, I slowly move to get the drink. But if I have another person there, I can't control their movements, and they're behind me. And I find that bringing someone else with me spooks birds. So now I'm doing it by myself to be able to... Well, you're doing photography along with birding, and that makes a difference. Ah, uh, ah, okay. And, uh, you know, I, but I'm, I'm kind of like you. If I'm out by myself, I'll, I'm a lot more stealthy. If I have somebody with me, I'm talking to them. You know, I just can't help it. So, That's right, because it's social, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, most birds that, that I would go look at are either too far away for that to be bothersome or, or they're just not bothered by it. You know, recently I've learned that if I stay in the cart or if I stay in the car that I'm driving, that the birds, mm-hmm. will, the birds will come. I mean, yesterday a bird came within eight feet of me. Stay where you are. The conversation continues with Arlene Live when we come back. Middle of the ocean, but this paradise is teeming with people with all sorts of amazing abilities. Benita Baby was nothing but hair accessories. <laughs> I had some little barrettes um, that we were making and headbands, our little like knit bow headbands, and that's all I started out with. And I decided shortly after you know I had been sewing for a little while that I was going to put it out there. Whether it's artists who create visual masterpieces, creatives inspiring others, people who compose and perform moving pieces of music, athletes taking their game to the next level, or entrepreneurs coming up with innovative solutions, there are a ton of folks here doing incredible things with their gifts. And I want to introduce them to all of you. Women, not just guys, women could come in and feel like they're there to train, they're going to be taken serious, they're, they're not going to be hit on by dudes, yeah. they're going to have their own space. You know, I mean, they're going to be respected as just another practic- practitioner of, of this martial art. I'm Jonathan Charfris, and I invite you to join me on the KUAM Podcast Network for Fistful of Talent, where I sit down with people discussing their visions and dreams and sharing the secrets of their success. In the avenues of, mm-hmm. yes. of Step. you know, being in the creative life and then what's, what's the next thing? Just subscribe to the KUAM Podcast Network on SoundCloud iTunes, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher platform, and prepare to be amazed. That's Fistful of Talent each and every Friday. Thanks for listening. And now, let me get you back to your show. 
Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Oh, yeah. I was... that's, a, that's a well-known technique among birders. Uh, a car or any vehicle uh, is, uh, is as good a blind as any because birds don't see you in the vehicle. They see you as part of the total thing, and that vehicle is not threatening to them. That's right, because it's, it's so uh, huge. It, it's just another animal in the environment. It's like a cow showing up. Uh, you wouldn't be afraid of. You so, just called me a cow. No, 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 I didn't. You'd be just a little tiny thing inside a cow. <laughs> that happens with mammals and with birds. I, I was on an uh, expedition to Kenya one time, and mm. we were out in the, um, what's called the Maasai Mara. And we were in a, a Land Rover, and the, the local guide there said, now don't get out. Mm. Stop. Don't open the door. Just stay in the vehicle. They they have these things with pop tops that you could stand up and right. see perfectly well, so you didn't have to get out. But we watched a group of cheetahs feeding on a kill, and when they got through eating, they came over and flopped down in the shadow of the Land Rover. Oh my goodness! Uh, and and the driver said, you know, if one person had set one foot on the ground, they would be out of here like a shot. But they just don't see you as a threat. And birds are very similar. I've been sharing these photos that I've been taking recently uh, with my friends in Africa. And now there's a mission to get me down to Africa. So I'm hoping that Bob will agree to go visit them next year. And they're showing me these incredible photographs. We don't have our descents in the same way that their birds have. I, I see the, the Sali, I mean the Drongo here, if, if it's mm-hmm. caught in the in the light, oh my goodness, the beauty of that black just turns oh, yeah. almost blue. Wow. But they're such a tyrant bird. Their personality, they're very aggressive. They attack everyone. Well, starlings in general are. When you go to Africa, if you get there, you'll find a whole group of, of uh, really spectacular-looking starlings with these remarkable iridescences to them. Uh, they're they're very beautiful birds in Africa. <laughs> yeah, all black. I want to thank you. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to mention? Oh, I don't think so. I think we've covered it pretty well. Well, I, just my curiosity over things. The speciation part is is something that that I really wanted to to learn from you. And then, of course, the the why they don't mate when they're not at home. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. something that I just took for granted, but. It came up in a discussion recently, and I said, birds don't mate when they're not where they're not from. They only mate where they're well, from. That's all, a, you know, it's all in a pattern of hormones. Uh, the, the sex organs of birds uh, swell and recede depending on the season, and they swell right before the mating season. So, you know, that's all under, under genetic control. Hmm. And uh, so that's how it goes. In fact, Birds where the males and females don't look just alike, so you can't tell them apart when you just see them out somewhere. Uh, the way, uh, if we have a specimen of those birds, the only way we can determine the sex is to dissect the bird and see whether the sex organs are large or small uh, and, uh, and whether it's a male or a female. But if we're near the mating season, they'll be large and easy to tell in the off-season, sometimes you can't tell even whether it's a male or a female because the sex organs have shrunk up so much. Mm. 
you know, that's a point that that I ran into in Saipan in one of my trips this year. For example, the ground dove. We mentioned the ground dove earlier. Mm-hmm. According to and that's one that has strikingly different colors from the male to the female. Except that, according to the 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 farmers there, the mm-hmm. birds are all in maturation the same color with the white chest. Mm-hmm. And that when they're immature and just like I guess a subadult, they all look like yes. the female, which we call the fatty or muddy look, right? But apparently, right. according to the farmers who see this all the time, they say no, that's not true. When they become adult, they're all the same color. They're all the the iridescent maroon with the white chest. Well, I, I we've had this discussion before in emails and. Uh, not meaning to be rude, but I understand. I think the farmers are wrong. And the reason for the confusion is it's not really their fault. A lot of the farmers on uh, Saipan are uh, from the Caroline Islands. And the Caroline Islands also have a ground dove, but it's a different species. And in that one, the, the male and female adults all look alike, but the young birds are different, or that solid brown color. But that's not the case with the one in the Marianas. And I think they've just, you know, passed on this information as folklore for years and years, and uh, nobody's gone out to check it out in any particular way, so they've they just continued to pass it on. And it would be true if they were still in, say, Chuk or Pompeii, but they're not. <laughs> well, you know what I did? Because I always have to find out my mind does not rest if I don't know. I went to the uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife there, and I, I asked um, uh, one of the biologists, and he showed me a specimen of the male-female. And he said that mm-hmm. they, already, they already checked this, and this one definitely was female, and this is the male. So yeah. there is that. Now, you mentioned earlier the uh, permits that were allowed to get specimens. How do you capture these birds for specimens? Well, uh, the, uh, the technique uh, that Phil Bruner used uh, back in the day, I probably wouldn't wouldn't be able to do it uh, these days, but uh, uh, just a shotgun work as well as that. Okay, so, uh, they, they net them they now. I want to bring that up, but, right. uh, but yeah. And then, then if you don't want to do that, uh, we have uh, things called mist nets that are uh, nets that are essentially invisible to the bird. Right. And they'll fly into them and get caught. And you have to put them up in strategic spots and all of that, but uh, that's another way to capture them. Yeah, I think that's what they do now. But, you know, I mean, at the time yeah. when you guys were doing this, there were different laws, so that's understandable. We certainly don't encourage yeah. anybody to shoot birds now. Back in the day, you know, nobody thought twice about carrying a shotgun somewhere well, know, the, on an airplane or whatever. You couldn't do that. You now. can't. And, you know, there was a time, too, especially here on Guam and in the northern Marianas, where people ate birds. My grandfather ate birds. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. Doug... Just the other day, my mom, you know, she's 87 now, so she's getting very elderly. And mm-hmm. we said, Mom, Mom, what do you want to eat today? And you know what she said? Mm-hmm. A pigeon. Oh, well, there you go. And I said, Mom, we can't eat that. And she said, hi there, that's what I'm missing. I said, oh, my yep. goodness, my mom. Because when, when she was a preteen, they, ate, they would shoot the um, ground doves. And, and eat them in safe and then the tut Oh, there, there was a there was a hunting season on on them right up into the 1970s. Really? Yes. A hunting fact, season. There's, there's a 
uh, this is another, I hadn't even thought about this, but for a while the uh, DAWR uh, was issuing uh, hunting license stamps. They were little stamps that went on the license to pay the fee. Uh, and I know about that because I designed uh, one of them that had the fruit dove on it. Oh. So I know, and th- that would have been in the early 1980s. So I've... even by then, I think they were still doing some hunting. But, of course, by then there was hardly anything to shoot. And where would they put this seal or stamp? I, you know, I don't know. I don't okay. know the details about that. Okay. Do you have a copy of that stamp? I do. I have one. Can you can you take a picture of it and send it to me? I think you already have pictures of it. I've oh. sent it to you. Okay. Uh, way back when. Then I have to look. I have to look at my Doug Pratt folder. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. My mom, my mom brought that up, and I thought, oh, mom, we can't we can't shoot the ground doves anymore. <laughs> Yeah, well, you can't now, but they certainly did back in the day, and yeah. and you know the the hunting was not what uh, drove their numbers down. It took something really different from that. Well, I thank you for bringing that back up because I think the insecticide spraying it's not just a brown tree snake, but certainly the brown tree snake aggressively um, diminished their population here. No, I absolutely, I I agree with you. I think there's probably more to the story than the brown tree snake, but the brown tree snake is definitely involved. There's no question. Yeah, I mean, there's. I, I don't buy the brown tree snake only villain story either, um, mm-hmm. because I, impact. You know, the development of Guam is very different. We've cleared oh, yeah. a lot of habitat for homes. You know, the villages are very different. Yeah. Even my mom's backyard looks different. So. You know, eventually things do happen, but I think it's all human intervention in any regard. Um, oh, of course. Yeah. So the CNMI, gratefully, do. the CNMI is doing a real aggressive job in trying to uh, stop the entry of the brown tree snake because they've seen what happened to Guam. And so yeah. there's my last question. Why do we wait so long before we do something to stop invasive species? Just uh, the other day I finished a book on... Uh, that I was reading that was for my traditional uh, fishing practices. And I learned that this woman who came out here who dove and took pictures of of the fish actually mentioned in 1951 that the the coconut beetles were here Mm -hmm. and they were attacking the trees up in Nimitz Hill. 1951, Doug. Yep, yep. So why do we wait so long? ...all over Micronesia and was only controlled uh, fairly recently. So what, why do we wait so long? Is it just money? Uh, partly, and, and because it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it does take money, and it takes getting some politician interested in it. And, you know, oh, it's just a bunch of birds who cares, you know, it's that sort of attitude. And, uh, I mean, for example, uh, when they were trying to appropriate some money in Congress to control the brown tree snakes on Guam, uh, there were senators and representatives who laughed at that. U.S. Senate. Yes. They, well, there you are. Yeah. It, 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 it's ignorance, and it's, well, I have said that people are stupid. I can't, can't say I haven't, but uh, I don't think human beings are necessarily stupid, but they are often ignorant. So They can't have their head in the sand. They just can't. They no. see it. It's just not an issue. Well, but in like in the case of the... the tree snake when it was being derided. I don't know if you remember, uh, there was a senator who was famous for 
for giving what he called the Golden Fleece Award. This was years ago. Um, and his name is on the tip of my tongue. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, hmm. um, he, the, the Golden Fleece Award went one year to the uh, bill that appropriated money for controlling the brown tree snake. And, you know, he had, had built a reputation on, oh, this is showing government waste and all this stuff. And it was just an easy target. You know, it was a snake. Everybody hates snakes. So he didn't really know anything about it. You know, he just said, oh, well, this is a, this is a good one. We can make fun of this and get some political whatever. He was from one of those Midwestern states. And, and surprising to say, he was a Democrat. This is a long time ago. Oh. You know, 1970s, 80s, when, when they were first. Uh, trying to do something about the snakes. And, uh, wow. uh, Senator Robert Byrd? No, 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 no. It wasn't Robert Byrd. Okay, because he's um, from West Virginia. I'll, uh, yeah, this guy, and you know, as soon as I hang up the phone, I'll think of his name. You know, hmm. So, uh, anyway, look up the Golden Fleece Award. I am. Right up, I am, but it's not. It's oh, That's where I got too much history. Yeah, Senator William Proxmire? That's him. Ah. Uh, Proxmire, yeah, there you go. Okay, well, I, he's probably not with us anymore. I'm sure he's gone. But, uh, what did he, I hope it's to his oh, just reward. What, what, yeah, what did he say about it? It wasn't worth what? what well, did he, he, gave the, he awarded the Gold Fleece Award one year to the appropriation for huh. uh, uh, controlling brown tree snakes on Guam. Well, you know, the, oh, what a waste of government funds, and that, that's ridiculous. That was a perfectly appropriate right. expenditure of governor, government funds, but it shows why we don't control things right. in the early days uh, like we should. Just the attitude, right? People interested in it. You got to got to have a disaster before anybody will do anything. And even then, it takes a while. And, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Even then, okay. Well, Doc Pratt, what a wonderful pleasure to be able to spend these two hours with you. But, you know, I, I still think that there's much more. However, I don't want to keep you awake. I'm sure you're way past your bedtime now, and thank you very much for making this time. Well, it was my pleasure, actually. I enjoyed, enjoyed talking to you, and uh, hope it will uh, give people some enjoyment and, and a little bit of education. Well, you know, yes, last, last uh, week I entered a, an art, I mean, a podcast on the bees, and I thought, you know, the birds and the bees, they have to go together. So I need to talk to Doug. So this is the bird. The bees came first, now the birds, and then tomorrow or next Monday, I'm going to be talking to my son-in-law, who's a master uh, beekeeper here on Guam. Arlene's version of birds and bees, we definitely have to cover it. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you. All right. I'll touch base with you later. Okay. Adios. You've been listening to Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Join her every Monday for a new edition. Log on soundcloud.com slash KUAM news or listen anytime. Scroll down and click on Arlene. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. Email Arlene, R-L-E-N-E at ArleneLive.com. Thanks for listening.